Isaiah 59, verses 14 through 21. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wraps himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands who will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. 59. And we're going to focus on that last verse of the chapter there. And by the way, I do have... um, notes that are in the back there uh, on a little sheet of paper. Um, I'm going to try to be doing that consistently now, and you can pick them up if you would like to. (laughs) And it might help you follow along a little bit. So all of us, on a daily basis, experience the reality that this life is void of comfort, and this life is void of peace isn't it? The reason for this is because we are a sinful and a rebellious people, right? And our sin leaves us separated from God's favor and outside of God's true comfort. So therefore, the world has no peace. The world has no comfort to offer us. If we were to search every square inch of this world, we wouldn't find it in this world. And because of this reality, we find that the world is constantly offering us some false comfort and peace to try to ease the difficulty we are experiencing. The world says you can find comfort in security, in finances, in family, in friendships, in your job, and you name it, (laughs) everything. In this world. The world says you can find comfort in controlling your health, right? It's a big thing nowadays. But death and decay is a constant reminder that no comfort and no peace can be found in this world. And praise God for the blessing of the reminder that this world is falling apart. And there is no comfort or peace to be found in this world. The reality is everything is falling apart. And we are all dying. And some of us are dying quicker than others, right? (laughs) And some slower than others. But we are all dying. Put your hope in anything, this church, your family, your education. It won't last that long. 
And we know that true and lasting comfort, true and lasting peace can only be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot find it anywhere else, even if you were to look under every rock in the galaxy. And yet the gospel is a bottomless well filled with comfort and peace. You would never exhaust it. You could continue to draw from it and draw from it and draw from it, and it will never run dry. This is why it's essential that every believer, and listen to me here, become skilled in drawing comfort from the well of the gospel. Yes, you need to be skilled in drawing comfort from the gospel, believer. And this really does take effort. This is a lot of work. I can hear myself speaking. <laughs> no, it's fine. You must become a good student of God's word to experience this comfort. A comfortless Christianity is not Christianity at all. It's not Christianity at all. It's something else. This is why one of my chief responsibilities is to help train you, the church, to get comfort that God offers. One of, my, one of my primary responsibilities as a pastor is to train you, to lead you, to guide you, to help you to be able to get at the comfort that God offers in his gospel. It is my responsibility to destroy every false gospel that you might raise up in your life. Every false comfort that you might raise up. And it is my responsibility to train you how to get the true comfort from scriptures. And that's what we do. That's what we're all about. In verse 21, God presents his people with comfort through the covenant. God's covenant is one of the chief ways that God brings comfort to his people. I don't know if you've ever thought of that before, but the covenant that God brings is one of the chief wells of the gospel that we draw from to get comfort. So I feel responsible, therefore, to take this opportunity to give us a general understanding of how covenant works and show you how to bring comfort out of it. I want you to experience the fullness of the comfort of God. And we ended up last week or two weeks ago at verse 21. And I thought, well, I could just cram it in there, right? Uh, but I was like, I can't do that. It's so unhealthy. <laughs> so we're spending our whole time on that one verse. So what is the context of this verse? Well, we need to understand the context if we are to understand the verse. In the context of this verse of comfort is comfort. The entire context from verses 15b, the second part of it, to verse 20 is all about comfort from God. This is all about comfort. If you remember, verses 1 through 8 got exposed to the people in chapter 59 that he is not the problem for their lack of comfort. Their problem was their own sin. The problem was themselves. Verses 1 through 2 succinctly summarizes uh, the whole point of verses 1 through 11. We read this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. God's arm, God's hand is not too short that it cannot save. It's not a lack of power or his ear dull that it cannot hear, nor is it a lack of God hearing. 
It's not like God can't hear our prayers. It's not like he doesn't care. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The problem was their sin. And that is always the problem, isn't it? It's always the problem is our sin. So after God exposed the problem, how did they respond? They responded with a lament, right? In verses 9 through 15. Now a lament is a heartfelt confession of sorrow to God over the wrong that someone has done. It's a heartfelt confession. It's acknowledging that God is right and I am wrong. And it's sorrow, deep down sorrow for what I've done. Then the rest of the chapter is God responding to the lament with comfort. And that's 15b through 21. The Lord says his own arm would bring salvation to his people. And what is the arm of the Lord? The arm of the Lord is the Messiah. He is the comfort that God is bringing. The Lord also says that he would come as a warrior to protect his people. Verse 17. Who is this warrior who is dressed in righteousness, salvation, vengeance, zeal? Well, that is the Messiah. He is God's comfort to us. We are told that the Lord will judge and defeat all his enemies. And who is this judge? Will one day conquer every enemy? Well, this is the Messiah, isn't it? He is going to come again. We also read the Lord will come as a redeemer to deliver his people. And that's where we ended up in verse 20, didn't we? He is coming to redeem his people, those who turn from their transgression. And this is none other than who? Than the Messiah. Christ is the Redeemer. Once again, who is the comfort? The comfort is Jesus Christ. He is the one who brings comfort to his people. Notice that all this comfort is based on the saving work of the Messiah. The context of our verse is all about comfort, and all this comfort comes from him. He is our comfort today. So then this leads us to what is this verse all about? Well, it is a concluding message of comfort based on God's promised covenant. That's what this verse is all about. God is continuing to comfort his people. And he is com comforting them through the promise of a covenant. And we can read that in verse 21. We read, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So it is obviously God who is speaking here. We know that because it says, says the Lord. <laughs> That's absolutely clear and obvious to everyone. But who is God speaking to? Who are the them in verse 21? This is my covenant with them. <clears throat> with them. Who are the them? And I think it is very clear that the them he is speaking to are the ones he came to redeem, right? 
This is my covenant with them, those whom I have come to redeem, those who are going to be redeemed. This is my covenant with those people, right? Those are the ones who have turned from their transgression, who have repented of their sin. And these are the ones whom God is making a covenant with. Now, if you are among the redeemed, okay, if you are a believer, if you are in Christ, and you hear this word about a covenant that God is going to make, what does that do in your heart? Does that bring comfort? Does the word covenant itself bring comfort to your heart? And I think one of the problems is, is that oftentimes we have no idea what covenant means. That we have no idea what covenant is all about. And so when we hear the word, it doesn't bring any comfort to our hearts. And so if this is to bring comfort to our hearts, we need to understand what a covenant is. And we need to understand just the basic uh, realities of what makes a covenant. So first, what is a covenant? Tom Schreiner defines a covenant as a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. All right, And I'm going to unpack that a little bit, and Tom Schreiner does, and I'm going to use what he says here to unpack that a little bit. And he says there are three important elements required to properly define a covenant. The first one is a covenant is a relationship more than a contract. When you have a contract, you have promises and obligations, right? And so in some senses, a covenant has promises and obligations, right? There are things that must be kept on both sides. But the difference between a contract and a covenant is that a covenant is always relational. It is always based on relationships. It's always personal. And that's why marriage is more, is, is, is a covenant, right? Because it's about relationships. It's more of a covenant than a contract. That's right. The Bible doesn't call it a contract. It's a covenant. It's personal. Second, a covenant is a chosen or elected relationship. Children are not in a covenant relationship with their parents because they are already bound together in a natural relationship, right? They have a family bond. In contrast, a husband and a wife are in a covenant relationship. The key difference is that they have chosen to be in relationship with each other, right? Third, a covenant is based on binding promises and commitments. Binding promises and obligation hold the relationship together. And once again, this is perfectly illustrated through, through a marriage relationship, isn't it? Both sides covenant to each other for as long as they live. There are obligations for their relationship to remain a relationship, right? Now, there are some basic concepts we need to understand if we're to make sense of what a covenant is throughout scriptures. Covenants are the means through which God has chosen to relate to his people throughout history. The other way God has chosen to relate to his people throughout the Bible, if you just look through the Bible, you'll find many covenants. And sometimes the name covenant is not mentioned, but there is a covenant there. Because all those things are there at that time. And God has always based his relationships with his people on covenants. Therefore, covenants are one of the central themes in the Bible. 
And we need to understand how important covenants are. They're, I wouldn't say they're the most important theme in scriptures. It's probably a stretch. But you could say that they are the backbone to the storyline of scriptures. Covenants are the backbone to the storyline of God's history and his relationships with his people. Secondly, God is the one who establishes exactly how the covenant is set up. You know, man doesn't come to God and say, I would like to have a relationship with you this way. Or that we don't argue with God and say, I don't like the way you have required for me to have a relationship with you. That's not the way it works, right? God is the one who establishes the relationship. God is the one who establishes the requirements and the promises. And we must bow to him. He is the one who establishes the covenants. And that is the way it always is, and that is the way it should be. And notice right here in verse 21 that God is establishing the covenant requirements. This is his covenant. It says, and as for me, this is my covenant with them. This is God's covenant, and he establishes it. Now, there are a number of covenants throughout the Bible, and I believe there are six of them. Other people believe there are five of them, and that's okay if you differ with me. Not all, not all believe that um, God made a covenant with Adam at creation. I believe he did, but not everyone does. God made a covenant with Noah. God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with Israel. It's also called the Mosaic Covenant. God made a covenant with David, and God made a new covenant, right? And so if you're trying to summarize all of this in the most simple way you possibly could, you could say there are two covenants in the Bible, an old covenant and a new covenant, all right? We say our Bibles consist of the Old and the New Testament. But where did we get the word testament from? Where did that word come from? The word testament comes from two passages in the New Testament. One of those passages is in Hebrews and one is in Galatians. In those passages, the word is actually properly translated as covenant. So it would be accurate to say that the Bible consists of two covenants rather than two testaments, right? The old covenant and the new covenant. And so it is okay to call the Bible the old and the new testaments. I'm not saying that's wrong. <laughs> it's okay if we continue to call it that. But I'm just telling you, I'm trying to help you understand the importance of covenants throughout the Bible. It is a big deal. So regarding the significance of the new covenant, you could say that the new covenant represents the fulfillment of all of God's covenants with his people. And this is a very simplistic way of saying that we can go through a lot of time in, in going through the details of this, and we won't. But I just want you to know that really the new covenant is the fulfillment of all of God's covenants. In light of this, what does this verse tell us about God's covenant in verse 21? And as I said earlier, this covenant is made with them, right? And the them refers to the redeemed, those who repent. But notice God goes into detail about the covenant promises and he speaks of a you. Who is the you he's referring to when it says, My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth. Who is the you there? Well, some might say that the you represents the them, right? That the you is the them that was just mentioned. And I think there is a connection between the them and the you, 
but I don't think they're synonymous. I think the you is the Messiah. I think the Messiah is the one to whom the promises are made here. That the Spirit is put upon the Messiah. And that God's promises to put his word in his mouth is a promise to the Messiah. And so why am I so convinced of this? Well, first of all, I think the context makes this clear. When we think about what would be the most comforting thought at this point, what would fit in the line of comfort here? And I think putting the, I think if, if the you was the Messiah, this would be the one through whom all the comfort would come. And so I think it fits perfectly with the context. All the obligations and promises are fulfilled in him. He is the true Israel who fulfills all the promises and obligations. And we are connected to him by faith in his finished work. If this is what was intended here, then it would bring great comfort. And it would make sense. Second, we see multiple similar statements with the same words referring to the Messiah as having the Spirit on him. Just as it says here that God would put his Spirit on him. Look at Isaiah 11 verse 2. We're talking about the shoot in the branch of Jesse. And we read, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's the Messiah. Or look at Isaiah 42 verse 1 in the servant song. I have put my spirit upon him. That's the Messiah. Or look ahead at Isaiah 61 verse 1, referring to the Messiah. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. I think this is very strong evidence that the singular you here refers to the Messiah. And third and finally, elsewhere, the Messiah is referred to as being the covenant to the nations himself. You can see this in the servant song in Isaiah 42, verse 7. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. It says there that the Messiah is the covenant himself. And we know that his blood was shed to ratify the covenant. So what then is the meaning of the statement that God's spirit will be upon him? Well, the spirit of God being upon him guarantees the covenant obligations will be met. What will the Spirit of God guarantee? The Spirit will guarantee that the words are kept in his mouth. And my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. The Spirit of God will enable him to faithfully proclaim the words of God. And this means he will declare God's word as the great and final prophet, right? The greatest of all. In other words, he will do what Israel failed to do. He is the divine ambassador, as someone said, of God. And he is God himself. His very mouth will be much much unlike the mouth of Israel, right? In this very chapter, their mouths are where we are told they failed in. And here it says that he will be successful as the true Israel. He will succeed where they failed. So the next question is, who are the children? It says, my word shall not depart. And then it says, out of the mouth of your offspring, out of the mouth of your children's offspring. And I believe the children are the offspring of the Messiah. Those who believe, those who are connected to the Messiah by faith. They're the spiritual seed of the Messiah. These are the ones who listen to the voice of God. These are the ones who listen to the voice of the true shepherd. 
of the servant. They have confessed their sins, they have repented, and they have turned from their iniquity. And by the way, this deals with every problem that God exposed in verses 1 through 9 of this chapter. Particularly the problem of unclean lips. Our lips have become so corrupted because of our sins, our entire beings are corrupted. We have failed to worship him, to honor him, to proclaim the truth of his glory. And the very depths of the problem is evidenced through our lips. Our heart is exposed through our lips. We fail to worship and honor God. And so the faithfulness of the Messiah will bring about a transformation in his seed. This means that you'll speak as a nation of prophets. God will put his words in your mouth and in your lips. And as a result, the nations will come to see the brightness of the glory of God. Next chapter, 60, verse 1 through 3. And will draw, and, and will draw many to the mountain of the house of the Lord. As we saw in chapter 2, verse 2 through 3. In other words, through the servant, we will fulfill God's purpose. In fact, Isaiah serves as an illustration of what this transformation looks like. Remember, he had unclean lips in chapter 6. And this was the same diagnosis of all God's people. And remember, God cleansed his lips. And what happened after that? He became a prophet to the, to the nation of Judah. He was a prophet to God's people. He was marked as having God's words on his lips. Similarly, the word of God in our mouths is the mark that we are the offspring of Christ, that we are believers that we are trusting in him. This is how you mark the true church of God. They are those who have the word of God on our lips as coming from our hearts, from a transformed heart. That's how you know it is the church of God. This leads us to the permanence of this covenant. It is a permanent covenant of promise. How permanent is this covenant? It will remain eternally forevermore. This means God's word will not depart from their mouths forever and ever and ever. And the Spirit will guarantee that God's words remain in our mouths. This also means that the church will never truly, finally turn away from the words of God. It is secure because of her connection to Christ. The true church will never turn away from God fully and finally. Praise God. So what is this covenant that we're looking at here in this verse? Everything indicates that this verse is speaking in a veiled way, in an early way, to the new covenant. So what makes this new covenant so comforting to God's children? What is so comforting about it? Well, the comforting nature of the covenant can only be fully understood in light of the former covenant that was not so comforting. <laughs> the co former covenant God made with Israel was unsafe and it was faulty. It was not faulty because the covenant itself was bad, because it was not bad. How can you say that the words of God and his commands were bad? They aren't bad. <laughs> the problem was not with the covenant itself. The problem was with the heart of man. It was faulty because the people could not keep their side of the bargain. It could not provide safety because the people could not keep the covenant requirements. Simply being taught the commands of God is not able to keep us safe. So what were the requirements of the Old Covenant? Listen to Joshua 1 verse 8. 
And notice a familiar word that we see in the same verse. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Well, they failed to keep the covenant, didn't they? Which is not really surprising at all. <laughs> and so they were brought under God's curse into Babylonian captivity. That's what we read in Jeremiah 32, 23. But they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Now I want you to turn and look at the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. And notice the safety and the comfort in contrast to the old covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. Do you find greater comfort in the new covenant? Is there greater comfort to be found in there? The answer is absolutely yes. You cannot be more safe. You cannot be more comforted. You cannot find more peace than in the new covenant. Now the question is, does God provide the safety and protection by canceling or lowering the standard? Of what God requires of us? Does he cancel the standard? Does he lower it? The answer is absolutely not. You see, what God does is he forgives our sins through the cross. That's why he went to the cross, to forgive our sins. He paid the debt that we should have paid. God cannot wink at sin. It must be dealt with. And not only that, but God regenerates our hearts. And those are two of the main, main aspects of the new covenant. That God would forgive our sins and God would transform our hearts. And the focus in this verse is the transformation of our hearts. Having the word of God on our mouths that comes through our connection with the Messiah who is Christ. If you have an ounce of desire for God, that is because God has changed your heart. We see this in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. How about Hebrews 13, 20? Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant... Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It all flows from our connection to Jesus Christ, who is the covenant of God with us. Therefore, the new covenant offers unparalleled comfort. It promises to preserve us, to keep us safe forevermore. This means either Satan nor rebellious people, nor even the church can prevent God's covenant purposes from being accomplished. This covenant leaves nothing to fear ever. 
What great comfort. So how do you enter this new covenant and thus experience the comfort he offers? God's covenant must be entered his way. God's way is through faith in Jesus Christ. Once again, remember the ark, Noah's ark. Judgment was coming upon them. They had to enter the ark. And how do we enter the ark? How do we enter the ark of safety? Through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way to be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. His way is through repenting and believing in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Based on his work on the cross that he finished and accomplished. How do you know if you're under this covenant? Well, one indication is that you love and cherish and speak and hold fast to his word. Remember Pentecost in Acts 2? Remember what Joel said in Joel 2, verse 28 through 39? It shall come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I'll pour out my spirit. Well, that's exactly what was taking place in Acts chapter 2. Remember the explanation for what was happening in Acts 2, verse 11? We hear them telling in our own language, in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. It is no coincidence that the first result of the coming of the Holy Spirit on the church was that the people heard and spoke the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a clear parallel to what the prophet is saying in Isaiah 59, verse 21, that the word of God would be on their mouths, the offspring of the Messiah. So I am calling the church today to find comfort. I want the church to find comfort in Christ. We need motivation to draw from the well, to work hard, to become good students of God's word so that we might be able to draw comfort from his word. We often don't believe that can bring us comfort. And we know that we don't believe that because we are often finding comfort from the world primarily. We're looking to the world to find who we can't get from it. I want to encourage you to find comfort from God today. Why is it so important? Why is it your duty to find comfort in God? Well, the world wants to sell you cheap and worthless comforts. Don't fall for it. Don't go for the trick of the world. It won't do you any good. Health, family, friends, money, entertainment, food, they can't bring you lasting comfort. It's impossible. You're going to die, and what good will any of those comforts do for you then? Rather, you need to find comfort because in Christ because that's alone where it can be found. Comfort is only found in Jesus Christ. And remember, let me remind you, that he is an infinite deep well of comfort. And let me give you one more reason why you need to find comfort in Christ. Because faithfulness in glorifying God with your life is at stake in finding comfort in him. You see, you glorify with your life whatever you find your chief comfort in. Whatever you're finding comfort in, whatever you're delighting in, you are saying, this is great. You are saying that without even saying it. <laughs> whatever you find your greatest comfort in today, you are worshiping, you are honoring, you are praising. You are saying, this is the best. 
Kind of like when you drink something that's really good, or you eat something that's really nice, or you get a new car, and you say, this is amazing. This is the best thing ever. You are finding your comfort in it. You are worshiping it. You are praising it, right? Whether it be my car, my wife, my money, my children, my food. This is why God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied and most comforted and most delighting in him. If you or I am not pursuing comfort in God, we are saying that he is not all that great. Only when you're pursuing your chief comfort in God will you be able to glorify him properly. So church, pursue your comfort. Pursue your joy and delight. Pursue God, knowing that in him is found the fullness of joy. Because in doing so, you are also glorifying him. It is your duty to seek your comfort in God. And it is your duty to turn God's comfort into praise. And we don't have to work hard to do that. <laughs> when we are finding comfort in him, we automatically praise him. It just comes naturally. And one way to experience comfort in Christ is through understanding his covenant better. The new covenant is the fittingly final word of encouragement in this chapter. And this would indicate the importance of the covenant for finding comfort in God. Don't fail to know the fullness of God's comfort. You need to know the depth of the well of comfort that God offers his people. And if you don't know this comfort, if you're outside of Christ, then run to Jesus today. Cry out to Jesus to save you from your sins. He is an endless supply of comfort, but if you don't know him, you have no comfort at all today. There's no basis for your comfort you need Jesus to save you. And so that's my prayer for you today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, for being the God of all comfort. We thank you, Lord, for being our mighty, strong tower, for being the well that fills us and satisfies us. I thank you for being our light that gives us the truth and enlightens our darkness that we are in. We thank you for being our Savior and our Redeemer and our Deliverer and our mighty God. Dear God, forgive us for where we have turned to lesser things for comfort. Everything else is lesser. Forgive us for where we have sought to find the comfort we can only find in you in the things of this world. Oh God, deliver us from such pursuits. And God, may you cause us to with reckless abandonment pursue our comfort in you. May we be those who are not satisfied until we are comforted in you. And may we work hard, may we discipline ourselves that we might become good students of God's word so that we might draw daily from the well of comfort that is found in you, Jesus. And Lord, I, I thank you, Lord, for the grace upon grace upon grace that you've given to us. And Lord, I pray that we as a church this week would glorify you through finding our comfort in you. And may the world see that there is something different about us, that we might not have what all the world has. And even if we do, we don't find comfort in it. May the world see that we find comfort in the living God. And may that be praise and worship to you. In Jesus' name.
Amen.